I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. I'll be reading from the King James Version. We have the same spirit of faith, according as it is written. I believed, and therefore I have spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us, shall raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which we call, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Good morning. I want to thank everybody for their prayers over the last few days. They've been working. This whole having three kids by yourself was a breeze. I don't know what my wife complains about all the time. I say all that to invite you tonight to our 6 p.m. service as we'll close out our um, study on Proverbs and talk about the folly of the fool. Um, So join us for that uh, at six. Um, if you haven't already, turn over to Second Corinthians chapter f- uh, five, chapter five. Forgot my water. <clears throat> so what we just heard read was um, the end of, of chapter four. And uh, really the thoughts of chapter four and chapter five are, are one, they tie in together. Um, as um, what we'll be studying today is is mainly um, a, a verse in, in chapter 5 and how it applies to us. But I wanted to start us in 4 so that we kind of get the whole picture of what Paul is talking about. And as Paul continues his encouragement regarding our, our glorious future uh, in chapter 4, Paul refers to our bodies as tents that are pitched in this current world. And if you know anything about camping... Um, Tents, tents are temporary, right? You, you don't, you're not really supposed to stay in a tent your entire life, right? In our days today, and um, even in the world when this was written as well. Um, so it's a temporary dwelling place. But uh, and, and Paul talks about that in verses one through five there of chapter five. Um, and while we are in our, our mortal or our earthly home, uh, we are painfully awaiting our glorified body, which will be our eternal home or our eternal tent. And if you look back in verse 11 of chapter 4, Paul says, um, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul longs for the resurrection body. He longs for that eternal tent and living forever with his God. And so one of the takeaways I hope that we take from this reading is, is that the same thought process that we have? Is that something that we also long for? 
You know, I think many today fear death. But I don't think it's so much death they fear as much as it is what they leave behind. Or what they don't leave behind. Maybe for some. You know, as my wife was preparing to travel down to Memphis, she was getting anxious. You know, what if I don't come home? This and that. I was like, you will come home no matter what. Because whether it's here that you're coming home to or there, you're going home. And so Paul finds great hope in that. And that's something that we can find hope in as well because that's what takes away our anxiety. Because anxiety, as we've talked about, anxiety and worry are just the results of a lack of faith and a lack of trust. If you trust God and trust His plan and trust His promises, then the hope we have is eternal. And that is something definitely to have hope for. Now, in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 5, in a play on words, Paul states that he confidently makes his primary goal to please his master. And then in verse 10, he points to the coming judgment day of the king, and that should make us, um, and that should cause us to pause and reflect on our attitudes and actions, which he talks about in verses 11 through 13. We should, like Paul, be totally controlled by the love of the Messiah, which he details in verses 14 through 16. So I'm going to read all of verse, uh, chapter 5 down to our verse of focus this morning, which is verse 17. For we know that if, in the, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would uh, be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So as Paul details our future home, and the differences between this life and the life thereafter in our, in, in our eternal home. 
he paints this picture of a new creation, the old passing away. All things have become new. This morning, I want us to think for a moment about the words that define who we are as Christians. A radio segment aired asking callers to call in and pick a single word that defined them. When the callers called into the radio show, they had a difficult time talking about the past and the words that described them. But see, they also had a difficult time talking about the present and the words that described them. Because there wasn't a lot of difference between the past and the present. Think for a moment about the words that define you. Here are some examples. Some people are defined by loneliness. Some people are defined by adultery. Some people are defined by brokenness. Some people may be defined by debt. Some people may be defined by a loose tongue, while others may be defined by an unforgiving spirit. Now, some of those things are things that you can take care of on your own. There are other things that can be taken care of in Christ. Because as people go through life, sometimes they change their words. Some people have changed their word instead of loneliness to partnership. Some people may have changed their definition of adultery to reconciliation. Some may have changed their word that was brokenness into wholeness. Some people have changed their word from debt to financial freedom. Some have changed their word from a loose tongue to control. And some may have changed their unforgiving spirit to grace. And I hope you see that in several of those categories, it's Christ that makes the change. Paul gives us a wonderful thought here in verse 17 of chapter 5. It's a passage about replacing the past with a much better present and an even more glorious future. You see, the Bible talks about the difference that Christ makes in the life of a disciple, one who follows Jesus and even one who follows and obeys God. And so this morning I want to look at some biblical examples of this. We're going to start out with what I think is probably one of the easiest examples, and that's David. David is a great example of someone who took words that defined him in a very negative way and through a close relationship with God and obeying God, He changed those words. One of those words was an adulterer, right? Bathsheba. Now, that whole story is full of words that defined David for a short time. Adulterer, liar, and ultimately a murderer. But see, a change had to make, a change had to happen. David talks about this in Psalm 51. By the way, Psalm 51 is a testimony of the old being made new, a bad past turning into a good present. That's what Psalm 51 is all about. It's not just, he talks about his past, he talks about the change that's required, and he talks about what gets changed in Psalm 51. It's beautiful. Look at Psalm 51, verses 1 through 2 to start. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David's calling out, I know a change needs to happen. I need you to help me. Jump down to verses 7 through 10. 
continues, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. If you heard a song there, you're right. There is a hymn written from Psalm 51. But David calls out for change, and change is what David gets. Because those words turn from adulterer, liar, and murderer to forgiven, to truthful, to repentant. I put some verses up there if you want to continue your reading in Psalm 51 today as you look through that. Let's look at another example, a New Testament one this time, and also another one that I think is pretty easy to put into this category, and that's Paul. Look at 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12-15, through 15, Paul details his past, the words that defined him in the past. He starts in verse 12, he says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Some people look at Paul and say, why did Jesus pick Paul? Why did Jesus get picked out on the road to Damascus to become a disciple for Christ? This verse, this section of Scripture here in 1 Timothy explains exactly why Jesus did it. Because who better to preach the gospel of the cross than the one who persecuted it? the one who fought so hard against it and killed people because of it. And you may think that sounds kind of crazy, but to those who knew Paul, to know that kind of change that occurred in him, a change that could only occur through Christ and in Christ, as he says in verse 14, what a testimony. Because those words that he spoke of himself there, a persecutor of the faith, he was arrogant He called himself the chief of all sinners. But as we know, in Acts chapter 9, Jesus made the change that Paul needed. Now, it wasn't just Jesus coming and making the change, right? Jesus didn't just come down, snap his fingers and say, be changed. Paul still had to make a choice. Jesus didn't make it a difficult choice, but Paul still needed to make a choice. He could have completely ignored Jesus appearing before him, ignored the instructions brought to him by the disciple, and could have just said, this is all, I'm I'm losing my mind. That's it. But he didn't. He made the right choice. He repented. He was baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. And then we see the change. Of course, we know the change because he wrote what we're reading here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 about the the terrible past, the, the great future that's possible, and the glorious future that awaits us. He also wrote Philippians chapter 3, verses 8-16. through 16. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowledge, or of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Jesus made a change. And Paul, what a change. Paul goes from a persecutor of the faith to a preacher of the cross. We'll go back to 1 Corinthians uh, 18 through 25 is a good long passage. I'll, t- I'll just look at verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That coming from the mouth of the one who said Jesus was just a man, the one who persecuted his followers, the ones who the one who held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen as he himself cast his vote against him. He stands there and says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That was him. That was him. But then he says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He went from being arrogant to, very, to quite humble. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3-4, through four, he writes, Do not... Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So you can look at this too and look at the past of Paul, his role as a Pharisee and his not just persecution of the church, but his blind arrogance, his blind injustice, his deafness, his hardness of heart to not accept the truth that was before him. Like many of the other Pharisees, they were more concerned about holding on to their position of power than possibly accepting that the Messiah had come. And that's arrogance. That's pride. Paul also changed his word, the chief of all sinners, and he became a fighter for the kingdom. In 2 Timothy verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Of course, Paul wrote that not too long before he was executed in Rome. Because his race was over. His fight was over. But he fought valiantly. And he ran the race valiantly. Can't think of another word to go with valiantly. I don't I didn't bring my thesaurus up here. 
Now, what about us? We've looked at some biblical examples of this. We've seen how God has made change in David's life, and he, ch- he went from one aspect to another, and again with Paul. But what about us? How does God define us? I'm not asking how you define you, because in all, honestly, in all honesty, a lot of times that doesn't matter, because we are our own worst critics. We can look at ourselves in the mirror and we can find 50 different things wrong with ourselves. But that's not what God sees. God sees a perfect creation, right? How does God see us? Three F's. First, forgiven. Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we're not condemned, we're forgiven. But how are we forgiven? It says right there, in Christ Jesus, right? God also sees us as faithful. I'm going to read three verses back to back from three different sections of the New Testament. Those are all the scriptures that I'll read in order. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek them. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Do you see how beautifully those three verses fit right in together? It starts with hearing. Hearing through the word of Christ. One cannot have faith in God, the kind of faith, the kind of saving faith, without hearing the words of Christ. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. God sees us as faithful. If you're keeping His commands and you are obedient, to him, for he is our master, because we've been bought with a price. Lastly, future. Jeremiah 29, verse 11 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Well, these words were spoken to the Israelites to give them hope for their future, it also speaks to us. Because God does have plans for us. And that plan was Christ. And for those who believe and obey, there's a, there's a future. There is a hope. That future and that hope was made possible through the work of Jesus Christ. God doesn't want us to be shackled by the sins of our past. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 15-18. through 18. As a father, we look to the the parable of the the prodigal son, God being the role of the father in that story. He stands with open arms, not just to receive you and change your life through your son, but he, like the father, goes to you to reconcile with us. God doesn't need to reconcile with us. We need to reconcile with us. With him, he just provided the means by which we need to do that. Our past and present should be drastically different. 
And we should be extremely grateful because Jesus not only changed our past, but he also gives us a future. Paul concludes in our text to focus this morning in 2 Corinthians 5 that all this work is from God who reconciles people to himself through the work of Jesus. The apostles had been reconciled to God and they were given a ministry of helping others to also be reconciled to God. Let's look at the last verses here of chapter 5, starting in 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The apostles are designated as ambassadors sent forth on the king's behalf to bring communion back to his creation. Reconciliation is about renewed friendship and a closeness with our Creator. As we read the words of the apostles, we are also being called to be reconciled to our God. Only by the Savior's powerful redemptive sacrifice and His people's repentance is reconciliation possible. Contextually, we can then be sure of our resurrection hope because of the, re- the reconciliation that we now enjoy. So, be reconciled today. The message of reconciliation that was given to the apostles is what is still preached today. In fact, it's what Jesus was preaching from the beginning. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so too today, we preach the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. It is His church. It is the glorious message of Christ. If we can assist you in this this morning, be it through baptism, or if there's any other need that you have for reconciliation or for repentance, let us help you and let us know that you need the help. And if you need help this morning and we can assist you, you can come forward now while we stand and sing.